Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, we left our small party of space colonists as they began their first test drilling for radioactive materials. Materials that could be transformed into enough atomic fuel to lift their disabled spaceship off this strange and alien planet. I've got the explosives. We'll be able to blast through now. Will, get behind that rock. Yes, sir. Now, give me a hand with the rig, Don. Daddy? Cut the blasting switch. I can't. It's already firing. Well, check the wires. Welcome back, folks, for Episode 7 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. And, Kurt, today we're talking about the seventh broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled... My friend, Mr. Nobody. Now, this is a little bit different installment than any of the other episodes we've seen for a couple of reasons. Number one, it uh, focuses heavily on the character of Penny Robinson. And also, I think this is the first episode that really takes on a fantasy element versus a pure sci-fi adventure. How did you like this one? Uh, I actually, I did like it. It it got, uh, it started off a little bit uh, slow, and then it got, you know, uh, several points of the plot got kind of complicated and made you wonder where things were hitting. And I did also like the fact that there were some scary elements going down in it. Well, I'm going to admit right up front that when I was a kid watching Lost in Space, I always kind of got excited when I saw it was one of the black and white episodes, expecting, you know, maybe it'd be the Cyclops or the War of the Robots. But uh, as a kid, when I saw it was Mr. Nobody, it's one of the episodes where my heart would sink a little bit. I think it was just a little hard for me as a 10-year-old boy to get into watching a story about a little girl's imaginary friend, even though it turns out not to be imaginary. But watching it now, I like it a lot more. And I do think it has some delightful elements to it and a few little scary elements. But let's don't get ahead of ourselves. It is a little hard to get excited about a monster that's invisible, you know. Right. doesn't even turn out to be a monster. I mean, if we if we joke about some of the cheap costumes uh, Irwin employed in this series, this one <laughs> definitely gets number one place, doesn't it? I mean, no costume at all. So uh, That's a good point. That is a good point. Okay, well, the writer of the script for this episode is a guy named Jackson Gillis. He was 49 when he wrote this episode. He had an impressive list of TV screen credits, including Zorro and Lassie. Wild Wild West, I Spy, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Mission Impossible. He later went on to write a whole lot of Columbo. Now, for Mm -hmm. Irwin Allen, he wound up doing seven episodes of Lost in Space and one episode of Land of the Giants. Hmm. You know, I'm always kind of curious, what is the deal with these writers? Because, I mean, there's several different ways that they can do it. They can write their script, and they could submit it. You know, I think they call that on spec. And if they like it, they take the script— or what it's beginning to sound like because of all the cross-pollinization that's going on here with these same writers appearing on all the different shows. It sounds like they kind of get a, okay, we'll, we'll give you this storyline and you can write this storyline. Yes. And you know, that's probably what's going on here. That's right. That's right. And then if they like it, they come back and they get another episode. And if they don't like it, you know, it's like that last director. It's like, uh, thanks, but no thanks, you know. Right. The director for this episode is a guy named Paul Stanley, 44 years old. The episode was filmed from the 17th through the 28th of September, 1965. That was seven and a half days. So this would wind up being his only episode of Loss in Space, and you can guess why. Although he was allowed 
to direct one episode of The Land of the Giants later on. So Irwin did try to give him at least one more second chance, but that was it. But he does have quite a few screen credits for directing. He knew Jonathan Harris well, for example. He had directed 10 episodes of a series that he was in called The Third Man. He directed three episodes of The Outer Limits, a lot of Six Million Dollar Man, Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible. So, all right. Uh, this episode aired on Wednesday night, October 27th, 1965, and there was no summer repeat. All the regular cast of characters are featured. The only guest star is actually the voice actor named William Bramley, who did the voice of Mr. Nobody. He had several small on-screen roles in several sci-fi shows, for example, Outer Limits and Star Trek, and he would return later in the first season of Lost in Space as the voice of the Robotoid in The War of the Robots. Well, it sounds like those are pretty minor parts, so maybe that was his main claim to fame, is he really was a Mr. Nobody. (laughs) Uh, So to speak. Okay, let's get into the story here. Act one, we start, as always, with the narrator recap. We see John, Don, and Will at the drill site prepping a hole for blasting. And no sooner do they hook up the charge to the detonator Then we see little Penny Robinson wandering through the area. She picks up a charge and heads into the area, and Don has already hit the firing button. It's too late to stop it, so John has to run out and race to try to save her. And he's fast. I mean, he's, you know, we talk about Superman being faster than a speeding bullet, but, you know, Zorro here is literally faster than electrical charge traveling (laughs) through a short wire to get to the charge. It's incredible, but he beats it. He does beat it. It's pretty dramatic, and and she's okay. She's a little uh, she's a little dusty. Uh, she's a little shaken up. Uh, I'm sure eardrums aren't doing too well. But she gets up, and immediately he starts. You know, I told you to stay out of this area. What I like about it was she says, "Well, I was only trying to help. I was returning these uh, plastic explosives that Don dropped." And of course, no one yells at Don. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, hey, doofus! I mean, come on. These were. Did you notice what that prop was? It looked like they were the little molecules models yes. that we used to have in science. In science, class. I thought the same and, thing. But the that what struck me about this is it brought back memories to a commercial I had long forgotten about, and this was the same time frame. And it was about uh, blasting caps and the danger of blasting caps because apparently construction back in the 1960s used these things to make uh, roads and stuff like that. And they were warning kids, don't play with blasting caps. And, uh, you know, it showed like some little kid discovering what basically looked like M80s, you know, the larger mm. version of firecrackers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then a cutaway and you hear an explosion. Oh, my God. It was it was rather terrifying the the thought of those things and I wonder if maybe that inspired you know that scene because it was like I said just happens to be at the same time frame that that commercial made the rounds. Well, that's a real blast from the past. I hadn't thought about those commercials uh, in a long time, but I I definitely remember what you're talking about. So who knows? It could be. What uh, the other thing about this? Did you did you notice how Will chimes in right away to sort of also add? <laughs> Add uh, a little uh, blunt insult to uh, Penny. She's not. She's not getting any love from anyone here. Yeah, but that was very realistic, wasn't it? I mean, you know, a sibling can't wait to to uh, pile on. <laughs> well, she's told she needs to to leave the area. She can't help. And I'm already starting to feel a little sorry for Penny. She seems like she's feeling very unwanted and under underappreciated. Why don't you go help mom? Well, she says she's too busy. <laughs> too busy doing what? You know, I mean, the laundry actually folds itself and puts itself in plastic bags, and the dishwasher does itself. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out exactly what it is she does during the day. Well, none of my kids are, are looking for ways to help me out with chores, I can tell you. <laughs> I can tell you that. So, anyway, the next scene, we see Penny walking through that fox backlot area they call the boat. We've seen it before with the rocks and the tropical plants and the lagoons. And she's talking to herself, repeating sarcastically all the instructions that she'd had to, Run along, dear. Why don't you go play? And she's answering for herself. And I think we're meant to feel sorry for her in a way, because she does seem to be a little bit lonely there. And, you know, now that I think about that, that's actually something that my wife Lisa noticed when we were watching the episode. She pointed out that everybody else seems to have a significant other person to interact with. You know, John and Maureen have each other. Don and Judy have each other. Will's actually got two friends. He's got uh, Dr. Smith and the robot. 
And Penny's sort of left as the odd person out there. She doesn't really have anybody to interact with, to play with. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's, Will's certainly not going to be her playmate, not today. He just uh, put the fangs in her, so she's on her own for a while. But we kind of conveniently forget about all her pets. I mean, go clean out the chimp cage or uh, help, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe build a little memorial to your frozen turtle. You know. <laughs> well, as she gets in here, we start to get some of the mysterious elements because she's uh, decided she's a little thirsty. She decides to bend down over that pond and take a drink, and miraculously, a little water fountain appears for her. And she's like, hey, what is this? She's surprised by it. And she hears an echo of the hay at first. She thinks, that's weird, but it's a little bit deeper than her voice. And what I liked about this scene, too, what added to it, I mean, we've seen this area before, but the music is pretty nice. It's adding to that sense of, of mystery and wonder. Mm-hmm. And then she starts, she starts continuing to call out, and she thinks it's an echo, but she's a little puzzled by it, and she starts backpedaling again, and she's heading for this cave. And we saw this last episode. Penny, please, don't start backpedaling. As a viewer, you know, at this point, I'm getting a little bit worried because this is not the same voice. Someone's calling to her, and, you know, you've got your little girl there all alone. So, you know, who knows what's about to happen, but there's a potential for some pretty dangerous stuff going down. Sure. And, of course, uh, right before we go to credits, she does walk backwards right into what seems at first like a rock wall, but it opens up, and she backs right into this this entrance of a cave, and then the rock slides back closed behind her as we go to credits. So we... We are fearing the worst, for sure, here. Yeah, she's been swallowed up by the mountain, literally. Hey, good time for a commercial. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what they've got, uh, you know, a little light uh, tang, maybe? Buy some tang, yeah. buy some cigarettes. What's the hurry? <laughs> the little girl's in the cave. She'll be safe, maybe. Uh when we come back, we're back at the ship, and we see Maureen is helping Judy decide on a new hairstyle. She's flipping through a catalog with, with drawings of new hairstyles. Will walks up, and all he's worried about is stomach. He says, can't we eat without Penny? Because they don't know where Penny is at that point. I Again, I think Will comes off as pretty bratty in this episode, at least for the first half of it. Will kids will be kids. But what do you think of that hair machine? <laughs> I mean, was that George Jetson-y or what? Yeah. I mean, it, it literally came up like a little elfin shoe and then twirls around and <laughs> has these antennas on it and everything. It's, they're always trying to wow us with the latest uh, 1992, 1997 invention. And the the automatic hairstyle is this week's version. You know, Either it's the laundry or I think yeah. we're also going to get a dishwasher. It's, the hits keep coming. Oh, yes. Well, it is a great hairstyle, though. I mean, she looks great. Oh, yeah. She looks great, just like the picture book says. But, you know, surprise, surprise, Penny comes skipping up into the camp and she's carrying something. It's going to be dark pretty soon. I think maybe you ought to go out and look for her. Hello. Hello. Oh. Hi, am I late? Where have you been? Oh, someplace. Someplace? Where's someplace? It's where a friend of mine lives, that's where. A what? Oh, he's just sort of an echo. We didn't have time to talk too much. Talk to an echo? Oh, of course. He lives in this deep cave, and when I pushed the rock and fell into it, well, then... What? Oh, I didn't get hurt or anything. And besides, it was so dark in there I couldn't see. So I just pushed the rock again, and it opened, and I climbed out. How big a rock? Oh, bigger than this, even. But I can move it with one finger. Oh, Mother, it's the most wonderful, marvelous place. Boy, why didn't you kids stay in that cave, you sissy? Because I knew I'd be late for supper. Don't you know what you would have seen? A white rabbit. And then this teacup and saucer would come jumping in. No, out. it wasn't like that at all. <laughs> well, now that's enough. Okay, Mom, okay. You believe me, don't you, Mom? Oh, yes, of course I do, dear, but Will just doesn't understand. And there's this magic fountain, and all you have to do is... Time's up. Oh, Mother, I like it. So do I. And there's this mysterious voice that talks to me. Darling, I'm very glad that you found such a nice game to play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's... I, I got to say, though, you know, now they're concerned, but they weren't concerned when she was missing. You know, I mean, why would they be concerned? She's just on a planet that has giant cyclopses, electrified tumbleweeds, yeah. and solar flares that can burn you to a cinder, you know, with just a couple of seconds warning. Why would you be concerned when you can't find your kid? I don't get it. Yeah. But... You know, instead it's sort of like, oh, a cave. Oh, no, a cave. 
Well, it's a selective, uh, selective concern, but what the yes, heck. Indeed. So next, Penny returns back to the cave, and she's calling out to the voice. She's Maybe she's just trying to make sure that she didn't dream it all herself. And she's attempting to communicate with the voice, and he seems to be learning. He's not just repeating what she's saying. He's speaking friendly words to her, and he asks her to come in, come in and stay. And I'm sort of thinking like the, the spider and the fly at this point. I'm... I'm I'm a little bit worried for Penny. Well, uh, did you notice what the music was doing? I mean, mm-hmm. that was your big cue. The music was sounding scary. It now, it turns out we're going to, it, it, there's no real danger, but the music was telling us there's a very real danger. The, the music was the equivalent of the robot saying, danger, danger, Penny Robinson. And, and I thought, okay, the gig's about to be up. We're about to see the big monster. Yeah. Well, I think the music really makes this episode for me. That's one of the highlights. And I was going to mention this later, but this is the last episode of Lost in Space that John Williams, you know, of Star Wars fame and everything, composed for the series. He did come back in the third season and write a new theme song or theme title for the show, but this was the last one he did. And I, I really think it adds to the whole atmosphere. But they keep reusing this music over and over again. Oh, yes, yes. It's yeah. it's reused quite a bit. So Now, I think earlier we mentioned that he, jo- Johnny Williams, also did the second one that they didn't use. But that's not correct. It was, a, it was somebody else who did the second one that they chose not to use the theme for in the second season. Yeah, I'm, if we said that, it it's probably is a mistake. I'm, I'm spacing on the guy's name right now, but I think it was a different composer who wrote that. It is competent, but it just isn't as catchy as either of Johnny Williams' version. Maybe Johnny wanted, you know, a raise or something, and Irwin said, tell him to walk. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they paid this other guy to do it, and they couldn't even use it. So <laughs> by the third season, he learned his lesson. Uh. Well, the rock sure does close behind her, and she's in the inside there. And then we cut to back to the drill site where Judy and Maureen have arrived to deliver lunch for everybody. And again, they're kind of asking about Penny. And- Hello, darling. Hi, dear. Say, didn't I see Penny back there with you? Yes, I got her to come along by promising I'd drop her off on the road to her friend's house. Will Penny come and get it? A friend's house? <laughs> you know, that spring area where she plays. John... You don't think she could be in any danger there, do you? No, no. She keeps talking about a cave that's dark and wet and shiny. Well, there may be some limestone-type formations far below, but there's simply no way she could get in there. Now, we prospected that whole area. There's nothing there. Mother, Jerry Pie, how did you do it? On the computer. (laughs) Well, I'm not really worried. It's just that, well, she seems so happy these days. I I don't want anything to spoil it. Oh, nothing's going to happen. Next, we cut to a scene of Smith and the robot engaged in a game of chess. And when we cut to this scene, we're just actually just looking at the chessboard. We can see a hand and we can see a claw, so we know it's, it's probably Smith and the robot. And then the camera sort of pulls back and you see that, oh, Will's actually s- sitting there as well, you know, watching the game. It's starting to dawn on me as, you know, there's all this mundane activity going on in this episode. You know, the the boys are drilling, the girls are fixing their hair, making lunch, Smith and the robot are playing chess, and and really Penny is the only one that's having this really fantastical experience. Yeah, and you get a good chance to see that little attachment that you were talking about of the robot's claw while he's moving that piece around. That's right, that's right. Smith has a look of deep concentration on his face, and then Robot checks Smith. So I think Will's seen this play before, and he decides to run around the rocks where Penny is playing jacks. And he's kind of amazed. Where'd you get those jacks? She goes, oh, my friend gave them to me. And, uh, well, they're just pieces of quartz. And he's, he's again, winning the butthead award here because he just throws them away. And one of the pieces lands on the chessboard and knocks over all the pieces. <laughs> and Dr. Smith is disturbed by this. But Will comes over and apologizes. Well, he's, I'm surprised he didn't pull that Eddie Haskell move at that point. I was just about to beat him. But, uh, no, instead he examines the, the rock and determines this isn't quartz. In a typical uh, Smith move, he takes the rock and scrapes it across the bubble head of the robot, proving that it is actually a diamond. Now, oddly enough, that that bubble is going to seem to repair itself mysteriously with no explanation later on. But I thought it was a pretty clever way of indicating that this was not quartz. It it was. But you know Smith too well because, as a matter of fact, he does tell the robot 
at a later point that I was just on the verge of checkmating you when that and <laughs> those chess pieces were kept over. So he does he does keep his character uh, true to form right there. But yes, he does decide to have the robot analyze that. He decides, my goodness, I need to go over and check on Penny because she had just mentioned that there's whole walls of these stones inside her imaginary friend's house. I haven't had a chance to ask you yet, my dear, but uh, how is your friend feeling today? I don't know. I haven't gone to see him yet. Well, well. It occurred to me. Perhaps he would enjoy having some other visitors to see his house and have a cup of tea. By a singular coincidence, I have very little work to do today. No, I'm the only person he likes to talk to. He's shy. But perhaps I could... Material crystallized under great pressure and temperature. Excuse me a moment, my dear. Wait, wait. Not so loud. I mean, not yet. Suspend report on chess game. Understand? Understand. Penny? Penny? Penny, my child. I'm not like your brother and sister, you know. I believe in your friend. Oh, it makes me feel so lonesome and envious to think of you having a... I'm sorry, Dr. Smith. You're just going to have to find somebody else to play with, by yourself. Material crystallized in the isometric system. And never mind all those polysyllabic words. Why they had to program you with an unabridged dictionary. The subject is a native carbon. Well, say it. Say it. Most commonly referred to as the diamond. 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 I love the look on Smith's face as he holds the little rock up, to, staring at it, and he's just beaming with joy, and he keeps chanting, Diamond, Diamond, and has a look, a very lustful look on his face. Diamond is a man's best friend, or at least this kind of man. Yep. <laughs> we knew Smith was greedy before. I mean, he was willing to betray his country and sabotage a billion-dollar mission to space and, and kill a whole family for some money, but uh, now we're getting to see it in spades here. Not to mention doom an entire uh, country of his fellow countrymen to, you know, a, a overpopulated death. No, he's, uh, he's definitely in it for himself. And, you know, anytime he, he basically is willing to betray the children, it seems particularly disgusting. <laughs> yeah. But in a nice sort of way. Well, the act ends as we see Smith uh, looking at that diamond. And when we come back... We're back over at the jungle setting, and Penny is happily walking through that jungle. She pauses to say hello to a palm tree or a bush, and the plant acknowledges her greeting by opening and closing its fronds. I mean, it's a very magical uh, atmosphere. She gets another drink from the pond, and it's at this point when I was watching this, because the first time I rewatched it, I didn't remember how this was going, but I was starting to wonder, are we going to find out this was actually all all some sort of a dream, sort of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, Yeah. you do kind of wonder. I mean, it's just, the voice could just be in her head. But then when you see the, the palm move, it's like, well, she didn't imagine that. But, well, yeah, she could have imagined it. We could be seeing it through her eyes. Right. And, I mean, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe that very first scene, she, you know, falls into the cave and gets knocked out or something like that. And this has all been a, you know, some sort of a coma-induced illusion or something like that. And I think I would have felt a little bit cheated if they'd done that. But anyway, no. Yeah, like the Bob Newhart show. It turns out it was all just a dream. <laughs> yeah. So the entrance to the cave opens up for her again, and she walks in. And then we cut to Smith and the robot. They've been tracking Penny because Smith is determined to find out where that, where that secret hiding place with all those uh, beautiful diamonds are. But the robot sort of lost the scent. Yeah, and the robot's seeming a lot more sinister again. You know, he's getting a little bit scary again. And I think the music is... Dun, 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 you know, that kind of... Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but it doesn't make sense because they were on their trail and they lost sight of her and now they're at a sheer rock wall. Where, where could she have gone? 
and Smith gets the idea, well, maybe this rock is uh, in the way, and he tells the robot to, you've got to, you're programmed for 50 tons of pressure, put your back into it, move it. <laughs> and then and then Smith joins in as if he's going to make a difference on 50 tons of pressure. You know, Let me show you how. And the robot's like, does not compute, rock should move. Smith says, yeah, which was kind of interesting. I mean, 50 tons of pressure, you would think, I mean, it's a big boulder, but it's not 50 tons. No. Maybe yeah. five tons, but not 50. Yeah. So you get the feeling, yeah, there's a supernatural uh, element at, at work here. Something's offering counter pressure. Exactly. And Smith is just annoyed with the robot. You blundering bag of bolts, and he sends the robot home. Well, Smith- the robot starts warning him. The robot starts saying, danger, danger. That's right. And he's saying it so loud that Smith is afraid it's going to alert Penny to his presence. Because of his greed, he actually sends the robot away so as to keep you know quiet that you know he still has designs on finding where Penny is. Mm. But, but he's willing to risk his life in order to do it. I mean, he doesn't apparently think he's really in danger. No. But still, it seemed reckless. You know, it, that, that robot is his only protection, and it was warning him of danger, and he's sending him off because he's so greedy. Right. Well, we finally get a good look inside that cave, and, and the, the cave wall is, looks like it's sort of encrusted with diamonds, and there's all those funny molten rocks on the floor. Did you notice that? They look like upside-down stalactites or whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, Penny has a book in her hand, and she's calling to her friend, but the voice is silent at first. He eventually does respond, and we get a series of exchanges between Penny and the voice. And besides, I still can't see you. I don't even know who you are. I don't know who I am. What? Oh, but that must be awful. Maybe you've been asleep or or growing up or, or, or changing. I don't know yet. Well, why don't you try to find out? Do you know what my brother calls you? He says you're nobody. Because I can't tell him you're somebody. If you just... Is that a name? Like Penny? Of course. But you could try to be Mr. Nobody, couldn't you? If you just let me see a little bit of you. I don't know how. But try. You just can't stay down here until you die. What is die? Well, I I don't think I'm exactly sure myself. But when s- someone can't speak anymore, or when someone can't move anymore, like before you could remember, maybe. I remember rocks, rocks bubbling. But, but this is granted. It takes millions and millions of years to... You mean you're that old already? Yeah, it's sort of like, okay, so what is this alien? Is it like a, a spirit? Is it is it a molten rock man? I mean, at this point, yeah. we still don't know if it's going to give us a physical manifestation of itself or not. Right. She keeps calling to him and talking with him, and then suddenly he goes silent. And she's about to give up on leave, it looks like, when all of a sudden... She hears another voice, and it's obvious to her, to us that it's not the same vo- voice. Yes, yes, but it's clever because it's continuing the same type of conversation. It's just a different voice, and that voice we've heard it somewhere before. It's very Shakespearean with yes. the rolling eyes. I wonder who it could be. Smith's voice is ordinarily can be cre- creepy a little bit and sincere at the very least. But when he's trying to talk like that imaginary friend with all that eerie music behind it, it's, it, it really hits some levels of cringe I didn't think were po- possible. Yeah, and the, and the neat thing is it's got the same echo as the voice. So you're kind of sitting there thinking, Penny, how can you possibly not recognize that Smith? But it does kind of carry on the illusion a little bit. And what I thought was interesting about it is he's kind of keeping the same sort of conversation. Does does that mean he heard the earlier conversation? Or did he just hear Penny talking to herself, you know? Like, what, was she was this all in her head? Or could he hear the conversation and he picks up? You would have thought if he heard the conversation, he'd be just a little bit worried that he's chiming in on this third voice. Right. But uh, whatever it is, it's a very neat exchange and a very cool scene. Well, we don't know for sure if he heard that or not there, but I've got an interesting, I want to, if I don't say anything about this, remind me later, because I want to, I want to come back to that very point in general about 
others hearing the voice. Eventually, though, we actually see Smith looking down through a crevasse, talking to Penny, and it doesn't appear that she sees him. He's letting his greed really get the best of him because he t- starts asking her to look around for some more of those wonderful rocks. And Let's play a game. Yes, let's play we'll a game. We'll call it Pick Up Rocks. And you can go for the really big ones, the shiny ones. Pick up the large ones. The billiard ball size ones would be very nice indeed. But if the, his greed gets the best of him and he slips into that crevasse and he starts screaming for help. And Penny runs outside and comes around and has to pull, pull him out. I mean, he didn't seem to be in all that much danger. I suppose he was just sort of stuck in there. But she pulls him out literally by the belt. <laughs> Well, I wasn't sure if he fell in or if maybe the cave shook a little bit, you know, to kind of get him to fall in. It was strange because he was his level of panic didn't seem to match how what the situation was really like, and I'm not sure why that is, but because he's Smith, that's why it's always that way. <laughs> his level of panic is always at number eleven. Yes, <laughs> it certainly seemed that way here. And Penny asks, Dr. Smith, what are you doing here? And I love this. He goes, looking for wildflowers, my dear. (laughs) (laughs) And she's not quite sure what to make of all that. But at that very moment, uh, another rock sort of falls and covers up the crevasse. Yep. So now, yeah, Smith is going to have to come up with another way to, to get into that cave. Exactly. And Penny's upset. She's she's already starting to get a little bit concerned about her friend that she's made. She's a little bit concerned about he stopped talking to her, and now this rock has has covered up this hole, and she's not sure what's going on. But all Smith can think about is those diamonds, and now he knows exactly where they can blast for them after they drill a proper hole. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, weird when you start feeling sorry for voices mm. in caves, but with Smith on the scent, uh, you know, anything is possible. And we know one thing is for sure, uh, the welfare of the newfound friend is going to be the least of his concerns. (laughs) Exactly. So back at the Jupiter 2, we have a scene where Smith is spinning another web of lies with Don, trying to convince him that he's found the perfect spot to drill for deuteronium. And tomorrow, bright and early, Professor Robinson's pet theories will send you drilling in some other outlandish location. Well, he just does happen to be in command here, and we do happen to need the ingredients for a rocket fuel. Oh, right you are, sir. On both counts. But wouldn't you like to be the discoverer? The successful prospector? Here, look at this. Porous clay. Where'd you get this? A place I know. It was washed out by a stream, but there may be more underground. Has Robinson seen this? Come on. Oh, no. He's still eating. And he's even more exhausted than you are. What are you up to, Smith? We could take the portable rig. It's only a few feet of drilling. Then the explosive. And we bring up a test core. You mean now? (laughs) There's only about an hour of daylight left. Come on. But this place is only a few minutes from here. Don't you understand, Major? I could do this myself. I would like to be the savior of our little party. But unfortunately, Professor Robinson simply doesn't understand my competence with the uh, explosive pellets. You mean he doesn't trust you with them? Or the guns? Perhaps by this act, perhaps by sharing with you the possible glory of our salvation, I can in some small measure redeem myself in all your eyes. sure would like to see the surprise in everybody's face if... All right, but we've got to step on it. I'll meet you in five minutes out by the drill. Roger. And remember, sir, mum's the word, just you and me. Oh, and you too, my stupid friend. I wouldn't forget you. Couldn't be a pile driver, eh? Well, for the next few days, you're going to be a steam shovel, a bulldozer. That's what's going to happen. I'll shake them loose. You'll dig them up. Every last diamond in that hill. Yeah, you know, for a bad chess player, Smith is really a pretty good chess player when it comes to people, that is. (laughs) He He knows all the moves. He does. Every piece in its place and all the moves three steps ahead. Oh, did I tell you about my latest move? It's called Castling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, I do have to wonder, what is he going to do with all these diamonds on this planet? I mean, he's, he's, obviously, you know, unless he gets back to Earth, I can't imagine what the point of having all these diamonds is. Well, see, that'll be the best part. They'll finally figure out how to get back to Earth, and they get it all plotted and computed in the computer. And then they wind up on the other side of the galaxy, and it turns out because they're still 200 pounds overweight from all the diamonds that Smith has hidden in the closet. <laughs> Uh, so we end Act Two with a, a, another clear example of how greed is just the prime motivator for Smith in this episode. So before we go on to talk about Act Three, let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Handsome, pretty, handsome Doctor Smith. Soon we will be together forever. Yes. Yes, dear, we will. Wow, Zach, how'd you luck out and find a girl like that? Why, it's just that... That's okay, but I'm already on 14 intergalactic dating sites and still single. 14? Is one of them green, Harmony? Well, I don't have time to fill out all those questions. Bill, do you want fast or forever? Only GreenHarmony.com takes time to find you that perfect green someone who'll follow you anywhere across the icy cold regions of outer space. Who's texting you? It's Don. He's asking me to be the best man in his wedding to another green beauty. Bill, it's time you logged into GreenHarmony.com. I'm there. What are you waiting for? GreenHarmony.com. Cosmic bliss is just a few keystrokes away. Sign up today and get a free plastic salad bowl. Handsome, pretty, handsome Dr. Smith. So, Act 3, Penny Robinson coming out of the ship, and she stops to ask her mother if she can think of a place or a thing that can talk like a person. Of course, Maureen's busy at this point. What's she doing? Well, it looks like she's washing dishes, perhaps? That wouldn't be with a regular dishwasher, would it? Oh, no. This is a space-age one, is it? Oh, a sonic dishwasher. Ooh, <laughs> ah. So you put the dirty dishes in on top, and then you just open up the bottom, and they're already squeaky clean. Mm. You know, they've always got all these futuristic high-tech things. Let's see now. We've had the automatic uh, hairstyle uh, device, and we had the uh, laundry. The, the laundry mat, it, yep. Yeah, and now we've got the dishwasher. I mean, people are really getting excited about the future with this now. Yes, it's a housewife's dream, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, in fact, I think somebody says, "How do you make that cherry pie, Mom?" And she says, "The computer." The computer, yes. <laughs> what, what's next? The orgasmatron? I mean, this is just going. <laughs> who knows to where this is going to end? So, well, Penny is trying to get Maureen's attention, and Maureen's busy, as as we said. And from a distance, she observes Smith scurrying about, and it sort of makes her wonder, "What's what's he up to?" And she has a worried look about on her face, and she says, I really should go and talk to Mr. Nobody before something bad happens. And Maureen firmly says, now, no, Penny, I've told you, if you need to speak to him, you can just speak to him here. And that's a moment we see kind of a crestfallen expression on her face. She realizes that her mother's been humoring her all along, and she's somewhat crushed. And then Maureen sees this and reacts. And yeah, she- and it is it is heartbreaking uh, because uh, Maureen tries to recover the moment by saying, well, you know, when I was a child, I had Mr. Noodles and nobody believed in him. And then finally, you know, they, they just didn't understand that my teddy bear had these special powers to me. And it's sort of like she was actually digging the hole worse because she now, was. now it's like, God, you think I'm crazy, you right. know? She runs, she, she, Penny just runs away and she looks so totally frustrated and disappointed that not even her mother believes her. So next we cut to Don and Smith and they're arriving at Smith's future diamond mine. Don sees instantly that this is not a good place to be drilling for rocket fuel, but Smith is determined and he brandishes that piece of clay sample. You know, I'm convinced, let's just at least give it a try. And so Don sort of reluctantly says, okay, we might as well, and they start working on that. And back at the Jupiter 2, Will is polishing some rocks and John starts talking to him about it and asks him, have you seen my missing clay sample? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have. But Will hasn't. 
Yeah. So now we know, like you say, where why Smith didn't want to trouble Professor Robinson with that drilling job because he yeah, he even says he even says I you know I, I want to show it to Don. He's going to be really excited when he sees this. Well, he's right. <laughs> Don was really excited when he saw it. He sure was. He just got snookered, didn't he? Mm-hmm. So. Will even says there, though, that, that I thought this was kind of nice. Will, Will says he's working on a gift for Penny. And while he's looking at those quartz rocks, he says, boy, these are really, these are really tough. And then he determines that they're not quartz at all. They're what Dr. Smith knew they were all the time, diamonds. And when he tells Penny, she instantly understands why Dr. Smith was so interested in her friend's cave. And mm-hmm. she's very upset when she learns that Smith and Don are out blasting somewhere. Yes, she puts two and two together very quickly. She sure does. Back at the drill site, Don is getting ready to call it quits because there's absolutely no clay around, but Smith won't hear of it. Just dig a little bit deeper. And Smith's face is really dripping with delight. He can already see all the riches that are going to be his. And we're switching back and forth quickly here because we go back and we see Penny is disobeying the orders not to return to the cave, but she just has to warn Mr. Nobody. Finally, back at the drill site, they break through that rock level into the cave, and Don's really had it enough with this. He says, this is ridiculous. We've drilled right into another pocket of nothing. Smith is like, no, 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 we should just go ahead and blast anyway. He says, well, okay. Don puts the charges in. One charge. Not, not, not plural, singular. He puts one charge in. That's all we can need. If we put more than one charge in here, we'll blow the entire cave up. That's right. He does, yes. But does Smith listen to him? Uh, no. Uh, uh. He yeah. pretends to listen to him, but the moment that uh, Don disappears to hook up the wires, the whole bag of charges he drops in there. I mean, all of them. Yes. That's every- a lot of molecule models. <laughs> every single one. Even the one that Penny found earlier, I guess. So, yeah. So. And we're drawing this out, and the tension is building because the music is starting to build. The tempo of the music is starting to build, so we know something. we're leading up to something very bad. Yeah, and remember, this whole episode started with Penny walking into a big explosion. There's a little bit of that risk occurring, too. Is she going to appear as they go behind the rock and blow up this entire cave? We don't know. We don't know. Well, it turns out she gets into the cave, though. She does. She does. But Mr. Nobody isn't answering. She's calling to him, and he's not responding. He seems to know something's up, and he seems he feels betrayed. We don't know this, but we suspect it. Right. Um, he does finally, right at the last minute, respond to her, but he doesn't under- seem to understand that Penny's trying to warn him of danger. She's even saying, "Just you could just leave the cave and get out of here and let Dr. Smith have his dirty old diamonds. And just at that moment, the blast happens, and boy, is it a doozy. The cave seems like it's going to just collapse right on top of Penny, and she, she looks like she's knocked out at the very least or worse. Yeah, although uh, several of the stalactites are kind of swaying gently in the breeze like Spanish moss. And I did see like that. The moving rocks, it's almost like a uh, Ed Wood movie with the you know, vampire kicking the tombstone and you know, <laughs> reverberating like paper. That wasn't the best effect. But, uh, you know, for me, it's kind of good to see that sort of thing because whenever the kids are getting you know at risk of being killed it it's always a little nerve-wracking and i kind of like to be reminded this is just pretend (laughs) yes yes so before we go to commercial we're left with mr nobody calling out to penny because she's not moving and he he says uh, when somebody doesn't move when somebody can't talk she's not moving please don't die penny please don't die penny and we go to commercial, and, and, and again, she might, she might really be dead, but uh, we won't know until we come back from commercial. So again, you can't go to the bathroom this time either, folks. People are uh, starting to get really waterlogged. Yeah, and, and we should mention for the, the younger listeners out there, there were no pause buttons on TVs back then. <laughs> back then. If yes. You, if you missed it, you missed it. This uh, is why so many people of our generation had kidney failure. <laughs> Episodes just like this. Uh, When we do come back from the commercial, we're not checking on Penny yet. We're at the drill site, and it is a complete disaster. Don quickly realizes that something must have gone wrong because the explosion was way bigger than it should have been. The look of recognition that he gives Smith is like, Smith, did you put more than the allotted charge in there? (laughs) Me? In the return, Smith is so quick on his feet, you know, of course not, Major! You know, the indignation he has, the very <laughs> suggestion, you must have let them slip back in there. 
and and Don buys it. He yeah, thinks, he's oh, like, maybe I did. After all, I, I let that other one fall at the beginning of this episode, so who knows? Uh, oh, it's it's wonderful to see it, him at the top of his game like that, you know? <laughs> it really is. And, and Don is surveying this mess. He's, oh, my gosh, what a mess. It'll take, it'll take weeks to clean this mess up, even with a, a bulldozer. And Smith sort of says, well, perhaps I was mistaken. Uh, I don't like to admit my mistakes, but in this case, I suppose I, I could have been wrong. And <laughs> Don's like, boy, that's the first thing you said I'll agree with. It could be that I was mistaken about the possibilities of our finding clay in this area. Dr. Smith, you finally said something sensible. But tell me something. Why is it whenever you come near anything... The roof caves in. We all have our good and bad luck, sir. But this time, I was wrong. I concede it. There's nothing further we can do here. I suggest we return to the spaceship. Oh, brother, you'd better run if you want to catch up with me. <laughs> yeah, and yet that should have been the first indicator that Smith was guilty. I mean, when he starts admitting that he was wrong, there's something not right. Exactly. Beside him being wrong. Yeah. Uh, so Smith's happy because he can just see that he'll soon be swimming in diamonds as soon as he can get the robot back out there to start digging. Uh, and they decide to return back to the spaceship. And then we cut back to the spaceship, and John and Maureen are coming in from a little night walk. And we can hear the sound of thunder on the horizon as if a storm is brewing. And as they walk towards the ship, they pause by the entrance and they share what will be their last on-screen kiss for the entire series, folks, because smooching is not suitable for the family hour, according to the CBS censors. Especially when the Earth is already overpopulated. Who needs more of that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Penny has, still hasn't moved. We're in the cave and Penny still hasn't moved. And he vows to seek out revenge on those that caused her harm and teach them a lesson. And the, the ground begins to rumble. We're left in no uncertain doubt that he's going to do something, something not good. Yeah, I can't remember his exact words, but it was something like, you know, you someone hurt Penny, I will teach them a lesson. You know, something along those lines. Right, exactly. Next, the ground starts to shake outside, and the earth explodes, and rocks are falling. Diamonds as well, as Smith and Don are running back towards the ship, and the wind is starting to pick up. And this is what I was going to ask you earlier. We can hear the booming voice of Mr. Nobody. You know, he's saying, destroy, I will destroy, or something like that. And I never got the impression that anybody else but Penny could hear the voice. I mean, it's, they reacted, but they didn't seemed like they were reacting to the voice they seemed like they were more or less reacting to the 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 danger and the earthquakes and the the lightning bolts do well you bring up a good point maybe what they were hearing was thunder that's what i mean it sort of makes you wonder you know maybe that is sort of like the old legends that that thunder is the voice of god you just can't decipher it mm. Well, it just wasn't clear to me. I never really, they never really actually said, wow, I can hear that voice, anything like that. They just sort mm -hmm. of were reacting to what was going on. So I'm not sure if Penny was perhaps the only one that could actually hear what Mr. Nobody was saying. Well, um, I'll say this much for Irwin Allen. When he does use a special effect, he gets, he tries to get the most out of that special effect. And the, um, the wind machines were working double overtime in this episode. I mean, oh. they were. They, they certainly were blowing were. all over the place. Yep. In the book, they were talking about that, and the, the they quoted the actors as saying that they hated that scene because those wind machines were blowing that sand. They were digging sand out of their nether regions for days. They they said <laughs> it's really pretty violent, and the lightning flashes and the the trees bl getting blown over and everything. It looks terrible. It's just it's pretty cool though. I mean, it's it's rather convincing. There's just one thing that kind of uh, breaks the. Uh, realism of it and that is whenever they do those really bright flashes of light you suddenly see that the the panorama pictures in the background yeah the cyclorama right yeah. all those light up evenly and there's no shadows for the rocks right. and stuff like that i mean because the lightning's coming at a different angle so there's shadows of the rocks in the foreground but there's no shadows of the rocks in the background and you can tell right where the sand ends and the picture begins but right yeah 
just kind of fun for us, I think. It is fun. I mean, and it, you're right. It's just for a second or two, but it's uh, it, it is noticeable. But other than that, I mean, it is, you know, you're sitting there going, cheesy wheezy. I mean, these guys are about to, you know, get blown back to their ship or something. Well, it's just at that moment that they discover that Penny is missing. And Maureen's really worried now. In the middle of all heck breaking loose, she's, she wants to go out and look for Penny, but there's just no way that they can do that at that point. They're trying to get the robot to tell them what's going on because this isn't just a normal thunderstorm. And oh, he's, ro- got a, he's got a great line. Uh, Negative release of pure cosmic force with antimatter core. It has anger. It will destroy us. Yes, and Will says, that's crazy. Forces don't get angry. This one does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's obviously never seen Star Wars. He doesn't know about the Force. But what the heck is a negative release of pure cosmic force? I mean, with antimatter, no less. With antimatter core, you know. Well, whatever it is, it's a it's a deadly combination, and it looks like that that they're going to all be destroyed if something doesn't change. Smith and Don just barely make it back to the ship, and for once, Smith is leading the charge. He's usually the last in line. <laughs> Unless high. he's, except that he's he's actually leading the retreat, so that makes total sense, you know. Then he's <laughs> first and foremost, and I think Don falls down, and Smith basically leaves him, you know. And Judy has to run and pick yes. up Don and bring her bring him yeah. back. It's right, it's right. <laughs> Smith, never fear, Smith is here, <laughs> uh-huh. and he's he's he even starts to realize that perhaps this has something to do with the the diamonds, and he goes he throws his diamonds back out. To, here, take your diamonds, but it doesn't help, does it? Yeah, but he does it in front of the Robinsons. So this is if they haven't put two and two together themselves at what's going on, like Penny did. This is the first time when they say, "Oh, wait a minute, Smith has something to do with this." Because he's basic. I mean, anytime you see Smith throwing diamonds away, you know there's a reason other than you know just to be charitable. Exactly. He actually, I think he actually says, Smith actually says, I, uh, I, I sacrifice myself, and he throws the diamonds back. You know, so it's like <laughs> I sacrifice myself, and he throws yeah. the diamonds back. So to him, the diamonds are you know what he's all about. But uh, that that's what makes it apparently obvious that he's behind it all. But then I think the uh, the father er, uh, orders him to send the robot out to attack the force. Yes, he does. He says, send that robot out there. John, the laser guns is our only hope. We can't. If we let it get that close to the ship, we'll be blown apart. The robot, Dad, he has laser circuits. You hear that, Smith? Maximum firing level, circular range. Fire all directions on command. Circuits. Armed and ready. Hurry up, it's getting closer. I just hope he can break that force apart. All right, get him moving. March, my metallic hero. Tell me when, sir. Tell me when. Not yet. Wait until he's close to its center. All right, start firing and continuous marching. Fire. March. Fire. Spaceship! Oh no! Cease fire! Tell him to stop! Hold, my friend! Suspend fire! Acknowledge! Very angry and very, uh, very violent. And the robot starts firing his laser electrical charges from his, his claws. And they've tried to get him to stop, but apparently he can't read the message. And Penny realizes that this Mr. Nobody is going to destroy her loved ones, like you say, and she's begging him to spare them. And he doesn't seem to be getting the message, but then at the last second she cries out to him and says, please don't kill the family, that she loves them as much as she loves Mr. Nobody. And I guess that must that word love must have done the trick because... Oh, yeah, he focuses on that. He actually says, love... Love, yes. love you. Yes. I love you too, Penny. You know, yes. and the way he talks is almost frustrating. It it reminds me so much of uh, our senator here in Florida, Bill Nelson. He always sounds like maybe he's on slow motion or something. <laughs> but you know, it 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 does give the impression that he's sort of learning the language for the first time. So it's forgivable. Yes, yeah. At least in Mr. Nobody's case. But, um, (laughs) uh, and we're relieved because, I mean, the whole reason he was angry was because he thought they killed Penny and they almost did kill her. 
Right. So, uh, you know, she's alive, and the last thing she's going to, she's not going to feel good if they punish, <laughs> if he punishes his fam, her family. So right. it's a good thing that the message got through, and suddenly the storm breaks, and, you know, I won't say the sun comes out, but uh, everybody's relieved. They're very much relieved, and everybody seems to have survived unscathed, all except the robot, because Will runs out into the desert there, and, he, and the robot is literally in pieces. So he's he's been the one to sacrifice himself for the for the Robinsons at that point. Yeah, I think he's in three separate pieces: his head, his midsection, and his torso. Exactly, and Will's really upset to see that, but everybody else is sort of mesmerized because they're they're all sort of staring up into the sky. Yeah, they're all they're all kind of concerned about the sister. Will is more concerned about the robot. <laughs> you know, that's, um, somehow that seems very much like what Will would actually do. Uh, but yes. he's not the only uh, five, seven, eight-year-old kid who would be that way. Absolutely. So what are they looking at? Well, they're, they're looking, looking up at the sky. They're looking up the sky, and it, it almost looks like, you know, uh, or a whole sky full of, of new stars being born. It's sort of a, it looks like multi layers of stars and galaxies are sort of superimposed, kind of an animation effect there. But it, it's clearly meant to imply something very, very miraculous because everybody's just looking up, or up at it in, in absolute awe. Yeah, and, I took it that they were trying to give the impression that the spirit was manifesting itself into a new galaxy and it was rising up into the space mm. and it looked like basically it was three or two or three slides from that planetarium you were talking about or astronomy telescope and they just superimposed them uh, against each other and brought one out of focus and turned it into focus and the funny thing about it was when it cuts back to the people's faces you know, they're obviously, they just kind of gave them vague directions. They said, now look up in the sky and look like it's going up in the sky. But they didn't give them specific directions of where their eye line should be. So like Don's looking straight up and Judy's looking at the horizon and they're both, mm. you know, saying, oh, it's beautiful. It's like, yeah. wait a minute, are there like two things going on here at different places? But, <laughs> but uh, you know, and it, it was a cheap, very cheap special effect because, I mean, they can't even get the stars coming up from the ground going up. It just kind of cuts to the sky. So it's a little bit confusing. But the dialogue makes it clear that... You know, it's a, a beautiful effect in the sky. Well, yeah, it is. And I, I did really, that, that ending scene where Penny is, is being hugged by John and Maureen and they're all looking up at the sky and she's, you know, they're saying, oh, it's beautiful. It looks like a new Milky Way, like you say, like a new galaxy and everything. And you hear the voice one last time of Mr. Nobody saying, goodbye, Penny. And she says, goodbye Mr. Nobody and I just I, I don't know I thought that was really touching at the, the yeah. last little scene she she really she really did a nice job with that well, it was the a, ultimate in the do ex machina ending I mean you know talk about a godlike ending this was it and I guess that's what they were trying to imply is that either stars were created this way or that God was mm-hmm. created this way what do you think yeah, it, I mean, it's almost kind of reminds me, you know, it's sort of like they were trying to get that sense of wonder that you got at the end of 2001, you know, when the star child is born, like you're seeing a transformation of mm-hmm. of that of that force into something new. Um, I don't think, you know, from a visual standpoint, it didn't really play it off. I think what made it work was just the way, the reaction of, of Penny and that last little scene kind of put a bow on the whole thing. But again, I'm not sure that John and Maureen could hear the voice, you know? Yeah, that, that, that I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me at that time, but now it's got me wondering. And, you yeah. know, when you mentioned about 2001, you know, if, if audiences bought that, you know, that you're going to turn into a star child. I mean, right. this is certainly a lot more believable <laughs> in some ways. It doesn't have the visual impact as all the visual pyrotechnics that Kubrick threw in there. But in the, how many days did they do to shoot this? Seven days? Was it six? Seven and a half days. Seven yeah. and a half, okay. Uh, I think they got more bang for their buck than Kubrick produced for 2001. I mean, that took years. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, this it worked out pretty good for seven and a half short days. It did. Well, if I'm good, before we talk about the teaser that's going to lead us into the next episode, I'll just tell you right off the bat that if, you know, we've, we've already said that we like the first five episodes better than Welcome Stranger. And I would, I would rank Welcome Stranger a little bit higher than this one. I did like it. I freely admit that it's, 
you know, one of those episodes that I probably didn't like when I was a kid. But I think looking at it now, the combination of the music and I thought Angela Cartwright's performance was very good. And I think they were touching on a lot of themes that were good, but I just enjoyed and was more entertained by Welcome Stranger than I was this one. Well, that's interesting because I'd say the exact opposite. I'd say uh, I was more entertained by this one than I was by Welcome Stranger. But I still can't get out out of my mind the fact that, you know, this wins the uh, all-time Cheapo Award on special effects for not only the fact that there's literally no costume at all for the, the... alien in this episode which i guess maybe he's not even an alien because he was born on this planet but when you stop and think about it i mean the only special effects in the whole thing were a few plastic diamonds and you know a molecule model for the right charge blast and of course they did run the the wind machines but big whoop on that i mean they had those things you know sticked over on the side of the sound stage anyway so what was that five extra gallons of fuel I mean, this is, they certainly didn't go very far on the special effects. But it, it's the, the fact, anytime you focus on the kids, you know, there's going to be that heartwarming element, and you throw them in jeopardy and danger, that certainly gets the heart pumping. And then they have the little thing about, you know, is it a deadly force, or is it a positive force, or a friendly force, and it turns out to be friendly. So, yeah, it had a, the desired effect on me. I, I'm not going to rate it a favorite episode, but, you know, I didn't dislike Welcome Stranger. It just was a far cry from the previous episodes. And this one is a far cry from those first five episodes as well. But I did think that, you know, it was solid and I enjoyed it. And, you know, I would look forward to seeing the next one as well, especially after seeing what's in this teaser that we're about to describe. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this, and I did not dislike it. I just want to make that clear. I, I did enjoy it. But this is a, a highly acclaimed episode from the critics. I mean, not that that means all that much, but the reviews that uh, are in the book about this one were glowing. All the TV reviewers that were basically panning Lost in Space, the first five or six episodes, thought this number seven was a, was a real keeper. And they even compared it favorably to some episodes of The Outer Limits, which I... Were there any episodes of the... You know that series better than I do that rem, that this reminded you of? Because two different people made that comment. Well, the ending felt a lot like, you know, a galaxy being type of ending. There Certainly, it, whenever The Outer Limits would end, they would have this this music that was reminiscent of this final scene where, you know, the, the stars go up in the cluster. In fact, they would show scenes that are probably from the same... Uh, observatory they would Mm. show scenes from that so it it conjures up uh, a feeling very similar to Outer Limits but I didn't see anything near the the fear factor that Outer Limits would produce Uh, it was just kind of the sense of intergalactic uh, awe mystery the unknown force cosmic force and all that sort of thing that we can't explain yeah Yeah, you might have expected a uh, outer limits to have something along the lines of a negative release of pure cosmic force with antimatter core. <laughs> you know that might have worked its way into a script to that one. nature too. But uh, at the same time, when you described it, saying that the people who didn't like the first five episodes really liked this episode, this may have been kind of like the a Rex Reed critic, a person who's not really into science fiction, and you know, it's sort of like, oh, well, I like the one about the little girl, you know. So, but uh, I definitely yeah, like it could science be some fiction. of that, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of political correctness and stuff, but it did relate to, you got the bit of the, anytime you can mix in the sense of wonder with the universe, along with the sense of wonder that little kids have, that's kind of uh, an interesting combination, because, you know, when you're a kid, all even the simple, small things are just so fascinating to you. Mm. You know, I mean, think about the very first special effect of this thing. What was it? It was a hose stuck up inside you know, the, the lagoon spitting out a little water. You know, it's like, okay, well, we saved some money on that special effect, didn't we? But, you know, then it was the, the plant kind of, you know, taking a little bow and stuff like that. But these are fanciful, remarkable things to a child. And sure. then, you know, you go into a cave and you see all the sparkly rocks. And, you know, it, I could see how that would just be, for a lot of people that were watching Lost in Space at a youthful age, they must have started thinking, yeah, that is such a cool planet. Even though the people who were stuck there really kind of hated it, the kids loved it. Mm. Will and Penny, I think they both thought that was a really cool planet. And as a kid watching this series, I thought it was a really cool planet. Oh, I did too. That's true. 
We'll talk okay. about the teaser because this is a great one. Okay, so the, we're setting up the teaser for next week's episode, and it begins with Dr. Smith by the campsite, and he's making some little adjustments to the robot, who's been fully repaired now as Will comes skipping in. And he's got a, a necklace of some of those large, rough-cut diamonds, which Smith notices at once. And uh, <laughs> he, he sort of uh, drops the diamonds at the, at the last minute after he finds out that uh, the robot's all back in working condition and will ask the robot if he wants to play chess and i love the just the tone of voice the robot sounds like a little puppy he's just can't wait affirmative he's very mm-hmm. happy to wander off and smith picks up those so-called worthless stones and holds them up and says oh when i think of the value of these rocks back on earth and this is the very first time he utters the famous words the pain the pain, oh, the pain. <laughs> now yeah it's a classic. Uh, it is a classic. And just then, the camera shifts, and we are seeing the same scene except shot from above, and it's obviously being shown on some sort of a view screen. And a, and a strange alien hand... With claws. <laughs> with claws comes into view. And the camera pulls back, and we see the dreaded Jello mold control yes. consoles. The brain-formed the saran- Jello molds. Yes. And the saran wrap, ooh, it's yes. very, very they're really creepy. They're really breaking out the big uh, high-quality costuming and uh, set design when they do the not 12-inch, but 18-inch uh, wide swaths of saran wrap blowing in the breeze. <laughs> yes, yes, that's uh, industrial-grade saran wrap, I'll have you know. And the, that bank of Christmas tree lights is also quite... <laughs> Yeah, and of course, if well. you if you haven't noticed this, Lost in Space's favorite backdrop is literally nothing. You know, it's black. A black. So you just you you know you you have some Saran wrap or maybe some silver streamers or you know maybe a, a little bits of a brain matter for, uh, swiped from a Fantastic Voyage, and then the rest is just black and let people's imagination fill in the void. But it works. So it does work. And so, gosh, this is a this is a great way to leave us hanging as the freeze frame comes in and tells us, ah, we're going to have to wait till next week, kids. And we go to credits for my friend, Mr. Nobody. So that, uh, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing that eighth episode of Lost in Space titled Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. I can't wait. A real... Uh, scary-looking alien coming our way. Indeed. All right. Until then, we will see you, and we will talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at Alpha Control Podcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com. That's L I B S Y N.com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.